Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. This week, U.S. Empire upped the ante in its violations of international law by breaking into the embassy of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela here and evicting peace activists occupying the embassy at the invitation of Venezuela. It is an extraordinary, unprecedented, illegal situation and one that we can't emphasize enough can have extremely dangerous repercussions. This is a dangerous path for the U.S. government to take. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, part two of our conversation with Professor Gerald Horn about his new book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa. There was this close relationship between Washington and Pretoria, and that relationship was not dented at all by the fact that Pretoria was siding with fascist Germany up to and including after the United States declared war against fascist Germany. All that and more news from D.C. coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, in violation of international law, police broke into the embassy of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela here on Thursday morning and evicted and arrested the four remaining peace activists occupying the embassy at the invitation of the elected government of Venezuela. The four activists arrested include Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers of Popular Resistance, a professor Adrian Pine, and David Paul, a member of Code Pink. They were still in custody Thursday night when groups in support of and opposed to the elected government of Venezuela held another in a series of dueling rallies in front of the large brick embassy in Georgetown. I spoke to Brian Becker, national coordinator of the Answer Coalition, which is one of the organizations that constituted the Embassy Protection Collective. A lot of people saw the pictures on TV of the, after the arrest, people being, uh, the protectors being spirited away from the embassy in police cars. So what happened after that? Well, the U.S. government used a military-style operation to arrest these four individuals. They've been charged with interference with certain protective functions, not trespassing, interestingly, and not unlawful entry. They're being held tonight in jail. They won't come into court at least until 1.30 tomorrow afternoon into federal court. Uh, we're here demonstrating because Carlos Vecchio, the fake ambassador of the fake president, Juan Guaido, is about to have a press conference. And while the U.S. government has violated today the Vienna Convention by seizing this embassy, uh, we're here to tell him that this struggle is far from over. Have you been able to speak to any of the protectors? No, we haven't been able to speak to them. Our attorney, Mara Verhayden Hilliard from the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, was able to go in after they were arrested with Secret Service. She was able to collect their property, but we have not had, or I have not certainly, and I don't think any of us outside here have had any direct contact with them. One thing is just about this being part of this the larger anti-imperialist struggle. You know, the U.S. government has never done this before. Even when the U.S. sponsored the Bay of Pigs invasion of April 
1961, the Kennedy administration didn't seize the Cuban embassy and turn it over uh, to the opposition. Nothing like this has happened before because up until now, up until the Trump administration, there's been a recognition that the Vienna Convention, which makes it illegal to seize the embassies of other countries by a host country, is designed particularly for moments like this when there's been a rupture of relations, a severing of relations, that you don't want the embassies, the diplomatic compounds, or the diplomats to be targeted. And so this protection that exists for all has just been removed for all. And the question is, what will happen? Will there be a cascading effect? Now, in terms of imperialism, I mean, it's obvious that the Trump administration doesn't care about Latin Americans because it's racist towards Latin Americans. So why is it intervening in Venezuela? It says it because it cares about Venezuelans. That's just not credible in any possible way for anybody objectively looking at the Trump administration. What they really want to do is to topple a government because it's a leftist government, it's a progressive government, it's a government based on or aspiring for social justice, and thus challenges the hegemony and domination of the United States in this important part of the world. And of course, Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world of any other country. So, you know, when Trump said, oh, the problem with the Iraq war was we didn't seize their oil. Well, the U.S. wants to seize Venezuela's oil. It's, I think it's, in some ways, down to that. The evictions and arrests capped a series of recent provocations by the U.S. State Department at the embassy, including severing electricity and water service, interfering with the delivery of food, and the failure of law enforcement to stop serious verbal and physical assaults against peace activists by the violent right-wing Venezuelan opposition. On Wednesday, the day before the eviction, there was a dramatic moment when the Reverend Jesse Jackson, flanked by activists, successfully delivered two backpacks of food to the embassy. On the ground was also at the embassy on Monday night when law enforcement also broke into the embassy by using bolt cutters to open chains and padlocks on the front doors. They then read a statement with no letterhead, stamp, or signature declaring the embassy to be in the hands of Trump's appointed fake president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, and his fake appointed ambassador, Carlos Vecchio. That same night, we spoke to the lawyer for the collective, Mara Verhaden Hilliard, and also a teacher, Juliet Barnett, who had been a part of the protection collective inside the embassy. Mara Verhaden Hilliard. I'm a constitutional rights, civil rights, human rights lawyer. In violation of a treaty that the U.S. government has ratified, the Vienna Convention, they seek to violate the Vienna Convention and enter and seize an embassy and hand it over to unelected appointed officials appointed by the government of this country as asserted as the sovereign authority of another country. It is an extraordinary, unprecedented, illegal situation and one that we can't emphasize enough can have extremely dangerous repercussions. This is a dangerous path for the U.S. government to take. And anybody who cares about peace, who cares about international law, who cares about stopping the dangerous path of the Trump administration needs to speak up. They need to stand up and speak out right now in defense of the people here who are upholding international law, who are standing against the lawlessness and the dangerous conduct of the Trump administration. Uh. <laughs> 
Obviously, even if they hand this embassy over to the people that they're appointing, as the U.S. government is basically appointing as an ambassador of another country, they have no capacity to actually have the embassy work as an embassy. They have no ability to provide consular visa services. This is a complete fraud by the U.S. government. It's a violation of international law. It's an opportunity for a photo op because their coup has failed, and it's dangerous. I cannot overstate how dangerous the U.S. government's actions are right here and right now. Juliana Barnett. And I understand that you were inside as one of the, as part of the Embassy Protective Collective. So tell me about that. I was in there from the time it was blockaded by the pro-Guaido people the day that the coup failed in Venezuela and until the day before yesterday. Okay. And why'd you decide to leave? It was a collective decision, a strategic decision, in order to conserve resources and so that there be to have to add to the people who out, who are outside helping to spread the word and help people understand the grave danger of turning this embassy over to an unelected government propped up by the the Trump government here that tried and failed to perpetrate a coup in Venezuela and has no power whatsoever in Venezuela. This coup has failed three times already. So that's something I don't see repeated on the uh, corporate news that that you were invited by the Venezuelan government to be there. No, this is something that's simply not been properly aired. Well, that goes along with a with a tremendous disinformation campaign about Venezuela, about the source, the main source of the economic woes of that country. I mean, draconian sanctions, illegal sanctions, collective punishment of the people. The, peop- this, the people who are here say that, uh, you know, socialism is ruining their country. But in fact, it is the U.S., the sanctions that have deprived them of international exchange, of ability to use their own resources. They have seized their assets. In other words, stolen their money and uh, including their ability to manufacture medicines. And so this is uh, the suffering of the Venezuelan people is very much attributable to these sanctions. And I hope that my fellow lefts, leftists and colleagues, progressive colleagues, remember that the disinformation campaigns that preceded the invasion of Iraq, that the, I mean, all the way going back to the, to the war, to the coup in Chile, that, that is very much part of this. And so we should not be taken in by demonization of the Maduro government or any nitpicking and quibbling about what's going on internally in Venezuela, because that is not the point right now. The point is to prevent a coup in Venezuela by the U.S. 
We are broadcasting this show on the morning of Friday, May 17th, and the four activists are scheduled to be in federal court here in D.C. Friday afternoon, so check for updates on your local Pacifica station. Now, very quickly, some other headlines from D.C. that we are continuing to follow include, on the international front, the Iranian foreign minister Javad Zarif said Thursday that his country is acting with maximum restraint in the face of U.S. threats. Nationally, Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning, who was freed from prison only nine days ago, was imprisoned on Thursday again in Virginia after she refused to testify before a second grand jury investigating WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The National Bailout Collective announced that the third annual Black Mamas Bailout Day freed more than 100 black mothers in more than 35 cities for Mother's Day while calling attention to the injustice of cash bail. And in other related issues of the carceral state, a two-year-old boy from Guatemala died three days after landing in federal custody in El Paso. He is the fourth migrant child to die in federal custody. Also in D.C., employment law experts are calling for an investigation into the National Labor Relations Board after it ruled on Tuesday that Uber drivers are independent contractors and thus don't have the rights of traditional employees. In the district, healthcare activists are outraged that the district's only public hospital and the only hospital east of the river had its budget cut by more than a half in the proposed budget approved by the D.C. Council this week. While a new hospital is planned for the area, details about the new facility are still not firm and it is not planned for completion until 2023. And finally in D.C., Howard University was the final stop on a national tour for the Green New Deal held Monday night where the leader of the Sunrise Movement, Varshini Prakash, called on the audience to make climate the litmus test for 2020 presidential candidates. Thing, I want to have some real talk with you. I want to be real that the next few years could be the last ones to elect a government that is capable of protecting human civilization as we know it. How many of you feel the weight of that? Yeah, you're not alone. But it also represents our greatest opportunity because the people in this room could be the leading force that builds the political and the public consensus around solutions like a Green New Deal that will save millions of people's lives. So if we understand the science, then we have to make the Green New Deal a reality. And I also want to be real that our opposition is going to do everything to stop us. They will do everything in their power to squeeze the last bit of money out of the earth. They are already responsible for the deaths and destruction of millions of people around the world. And they sleep pretty comfortably at night on feather pillows in one of their many multi-million dollar mansions. But there is too much at stake to not give it our best shot, isn't there? There are too many cultures and communities that may be lost. Too many people who may drown or burn. There are too many damn lives on the line to not give it every single thing that we have got. That's right. 
So I want to ask you, do you believe the science? Do you believe in justice? And do you believe in a better day? Then we must organize and we gotta mobilize and we gotta get everybody in this movement to shake the very foundations of this world to those who so hate and division fall and a new day is born and I wanna ask, are you with me in that fight? Are you with me in that fight? So we might fail at all of this, but together I believe that we can do it. So will you join me in helping write the next chapter of American history together? And that was Varshini Prakash, executive director of the Sunrise Movement, speaking at the final stop of the Green New Deal tour at Howard University on Monday. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, white supremacy confronted U.S. imperialism and anti-communism versus the liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Part two of our discussion with, with author Gerald Horn. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, we're going to have part two of our discussion with Professor Gerald Horn about his new book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa, From Rhodes to Mandela. So first, thanks for doing this part to Gerald. And why don't we jump right in? In your book, you discuss in detail the period in South Africa leading up to the Second World War. And from your detail, I'm picking out about three or four factors that seem to contribute to so much support for Nazi Germany in South Africa. One, its own history of slavery and genocide against Africans. Two, the kinship many South Africans felt toward what was a German-held territory on its border, present-day Namibia. And three, remaining hostility toward Britain, which fought Nazi Germany in World War II because Britain had defeated South Africans in the Anglo-Boer War. So can you tell us about that period in South Africa before World War II and its relationship to the development of South African apartheid and support for fascism? Well, as you correctly suggest, Germany backed the Afrikaner elite in the late 19th century when they fought in a settlers' revolt against British rule in South Africa. The Afrikaner elite bet heavily upon the point that Germany was the rising power and Britain was the descending power. Therefore, by the 1930s, as Hitler assumed power in Berlin, the Afrikaner elite uh, made a wager that Germany would prevail over Britain. And as you also correctly suggest, there was an affinity uh, between the Afrikaner elite and Germany. Recall, as you noted, that in the late 19th century, it was Germany that foisted colonialism on South Africa's northern neighbor, formerly called German Southwest Africa, now called Namibia, larger than California and Texas combined in terms of territory. And it was Germany that inflicted a horrendous genocide on the Nama and Herero people of formerly German Southwest Africa between 1904 and 1908 that in some ways anticipated the genocide that was inflicted on Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and in the 1940s. And so there was quite a parallel between Berlin and Pretoria that was solidified further when both put London in the crosshairs. That is to say, the Afrikaner elite was still smarting from the fact that not only were they defeated by London in the so-called Anglo-Poor War at the end of the 19th century, but just as during the settlers' revolt in North America that led to the foundation of the United States in the late 18th century, where you saw Africans disproportionately siding with London, Likewise, with regard to the so-called Anglo-Boer War of the late 19th century, another settlers' revolt, Africans again disproportionately sided with London, uh, which inflamed the ire of the Afrikaner elite, helping to stoke even more fury towards the African population, generating dreams of a deepening fascism in southern Africa. 
But the population of Africans was virtually enslaved there, and I'm just wondering why the white Afrikaners thought they would have any allegiance from African people, given their treatment. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you could make <laughs> the same argument with regard to Africans in North America. As you know, there are a lot of black people in, in North America uh, who argued that the Africans here supported George Washington and the settlers when they revolted against British rule, even though George Washington and the settlers were on the fast track to escalating their role in the African slave trade after their victory against London. They ousted London from the leadership of the African slave trade. And in fact, uh, one of Washington's leading intellectuals, albeit now deceased, Roger Wilkins, uh, the nephew of former NAACP leader Roy Wilkins wrote an entire book uh, rationalizing and discussing why it was the proper decision for black people to support their slave masters when they revolted against London, which had moved prematurely in 1772 to abolish slavery in England. Mm -hmm. So given that history on this side of the Atlantic, I'm not sure why we should look at scans at uh, what unfolded in South Africa. Well, I know that uh, F.W. de Klerk, the final apartheid president, you mentioned in your book that he recalled in 1999 that the Anglo-Boer War, quote, burned itself into the collective consciousness of my people, the Afrikaners, like no other event in our history, end quote. And he compared the setbacks suffered to what befell Dixie, the southern slaveocracy here in this country, in 1865. And he said he was strongly anti-British in his youth. So I'm wondering, in addition to the factors I rattled off before, your chapter about this era in South Africa says that the U.S. lays the foundation for apartheid, 1906 to 1930. Tell us more about the U.S. role. Well, apartheid comes into existence in 1948. It's basically a heightening of the neo-slavery and the racism that had been inflicted on South Africa since the invasion by the Dutch in 1652, soon to be accompanied by French Protestants expelled from France. And what's striking about the rise of apartheid, particularly in its emergence by 1948, is the role played by U.S. entities and nationals. For example, the Carnegie Corporation of New York, a major foundation to this very day, basically funded studies that laid the foundation and the establishment for apartheid. Of course, they've apologized since, uh, too little too late in my opinion. They, may, they should be forced to pay reparations to those Africans who were bludgeoned by their decision to fund a study, fund studies leading to apartheid. Because basically, as they saw things, there was a parallel between South Africa and the United States of America. From their point of view, the a purpose of apartheid was to wall off the so-called poor Afrikaners from competition for Africans and to engage in a kind of affirmative action plan for a poor Afrikaners, which is basically what apartheid was all about. And, and to a certain extent, it succeeded uh, by dint of setting up state-owned corporations through which uh, there were, was affirmative action to hire and promote a poor Afrikaners. Indeed, as I say in the opening pages of this book, 
a U.S. diplomat advised the Afrikaner elite in the 1920s that they basically had three choices. They could assimilate to within the African population, which would involve some form of miscegenation or intermarriage. They could exterminate the African population, not unlike what happened in North America to the indigenous population uh, beginning in the late 1500s and accelerating in the 1600s and 1700s. Or they could immigrate. Uh, they could move. And of course, there have been a number of South Africans of European descent uh, who took that latter option, including Elon Musk, the billionaire, uh, who is trying to send uh, forces into outer space as we speak and developing the so-called uh, electric car, the Tesla. Uh, Charlize Theron, the actor uh, who is now starring at Longshot at theaters everywhere. And so there was this close relationship between Washington and Pretoria, and that relationship was not dented at all by the fact that Pretoria was siding with fascist Germany up to and including after the United States declared war against fascist Germany in the 1940s. And as I detail in the book, the Afrikaner elite and many of the rank and file as well were heavily involved in trying to sabotage the war effort uh, against uh, Nazi Germany. They were trying to prevent uh, young men and some women from entering the armed forces to fight against Nazi Germany. They were blowing up recruiting stations. Uh, there was a, a neo-fascist force, the Gray Shirts, that was beating up anti-fascist protesters. A leader in South Africa, Oswald Perot, who later gained notoriety in prosecuting and persecuting leaders of the African National Congress and the South African Communist Party in the 1950s, was actually of was actually spoke German, used to give speeches on South African radio in the 1930s in Germany, even though hardly anybody understood what he was saying. It was obviously a signal uh, to his paymasters in Berlin. Speaking of which, the Afrikaner elite frequently consorted and met with Adolf Hitler and Hermann Goering and other leading fascist leaders. So it's quite remarkable that then in the 1980s, then U.S. President Ronald Wilson Reagan said that there should be sympathy for apartheid in Pretoria because supposedly these Afrikaners had sided with the United States during the war with Germany, when in fact, they had sided with the Germans. Well, also, you note in your book that when we get closer to World War II and during the war, you write that South Africa did not make overtures to the Jewish population that had begun to flow southward during the era of the Russian czars. And U.S. diplomats stationed in South Africa at that time started to report swastikas being drawn over recruiting posters to reveal their sentiment about fighting for Britain, for the U.K. And also concentration camps for Jews in South Africa. Were they actually camps there? Not necessarily activated, but that was certainly on offer. That was certainly contemplated. One of the many reasons why the African elite was forced to give up power in 1994 with the first democratic elections that led to the ascendancy of Nelson Mandela was because of their inability to build the kind of synthetic whiteness that you see in the United States, where all of these people of European descent were under this one umbrella called white. 
And of course, there are tensions between and amongst them. We know that the United States has a long history of anti-Catholicism, not to mention a long history of anti-Semitism. But what befell South Africa was off the charts compared to uh, what happened in the United States, for example, with regard to anti-Semitism. Because as noted, with the anti-Semitism in Russia under the czars in particular, uh, you had a significant flow of Jewish people from Russia and Eastern Europe uh, southward. In fact, uh, the ancestors of Norman Mailer, the late uh, celebrated U.S. writer, uh, were part of that flow of Jewish people from Eastern Europe to South Africa before, of course, coming across the Atlantic to the United States of America. And what's striking is that because of the Afrikaners' elite's ability to open up the doors of whiteness to welcome this Jewish population, uh, they wound up being alienated, uh, to put it mildly. Many of them joined the ANC. There were a significant number of uh, Jewish leaders of the African National Congress and, of course, the South African Communist Party, including the late Joe Slovo, uh, who was one of Nelson Mandela's closest comrades and was also for a while the leader of the armed wing of the ANC in the 1980s and the run-up to the 1990s. And he was not alone. Uh, there were many uh, who walked in his footsteps. But on the other side of the equation, uh, there were a number of Jewish people who sided with the apartheid regime, despite its uh, rancid anti-Semitism. And one of the chief prosecutors and persecutors of Nelson Mandela and the ANC was Percy Utah, who was a figure in the South African Jewish community. Some of your listeners may be familiar with Abba Ibn, uh, who wound up becoming a spokesperson uh, for Israel uh, during the height of its aggression against the Arab community in the 1960s, particularly the 1967 war. And, of course, South Africa has a substantial Jewish population that contributed heavily, I'm afraid to say, uh, to Israel. And, in fact, there was a, a Israeli-South African apartheid collaboration on the nuclear front as well. And so this is a, a quite stunning and remarkable turn of events in light of the rank anti-Semitism that characterized the Afrikaner elite in Pretoria. Okay, well, on that note, we're going to take a brief break. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Stay with us. Wait. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm speaking with Professor Gerald Horn about his latest book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. And Gerald, before the break, we were talking about the relationship between South Africa and Nazi Germany and also the issues of anti-Semitism and and nationalism in South Africa. And it reminds me that during these conversations for the F word, I want to include the ways that the government was being dictated to by corporations and business. And you 
wrote and you already discussed in, in part that apartheid was, among other things, an attempt to elevate poor Afrikaners and wall them off from competition so that apartheid barred Africans from being carpenters, but allowed them to become surgeons. And so that poor whites there would not have the competition from this this black majority. So tell us a little bit about how this Afrikaner like nationalism made it difficult for apartheid to work. What made it difficult to work for a number of reasons. The U.S. emissaries in South Africa were always exhorting and advising and counseling the government in Pretoria to admit more migrants from Europe. Okay, they understood why they didn't want to admit Jewish migrants. In fact, there was no small amount of sympathy amongst U.S. uh, emissaries who were anti-Semitic themselves to a certain degree for that point of view. But take 1956, for example, when you have the anti-communist revolt in Budapest, Hungary. The South Africans were finally convinced to let in thousands upon thousands of Hungarians. But that was really quite unusual. Uh, Quite typically, they were not seeking to open the doors to these migrant flows uh, from Europe in order to bolster the population defined as white, even though the population of South Africa was about 80 to 85 percent African or black, and only about 5 to 10 percent could be defined as, quote, white, with the rest, of course, being of either South Asian descent heavily concentrated on the Indian Ocean shore around Durban, or of so-called colored descent. Uh, That is to say that these folks were a mixture either of African and European, or a mixture of African and European and perhaps Indonesian, because of course, uh, in the 18th and 19th century, up until the 1830s, you had uh, Afrikaners enslaving those who had roots in Indonesia, and and then, of course, many of those folks mixed with enslaved Mozambicans, who were also part of the enslaved population that was heavily concentrated around Cape Town on the Atlantic coast, near the tip of the continent of Africa, in fact. So, South Africa, or at least the elite, the ruling elite in South Africa, had difficulty in in bolstering that population. And then there was a a basic contradiction within apartheid itself and within the system of racism in South Africa itself, which is that because the majority of the population was generally deprived of education and there was an attempt to make sure they did not have the skills to propel a complex economy because that might bring them into conflict or competition with poor Afrikaners, Uh, That also meant that they did not have adequate wages, and of course the whole purpose of the system was to ensure that they did not have adequate wages. But this also meant a perpetual slowdown in the economy, because not having uh, skilled workers and not having uh, consumers with money to buy the goods that were being produced. And so apartheid was facing a fundamental dilemma. In fact, it was not unlike the dilemma uh, faced in Dixie, which had a similar kind of problem. Admittedly, uh, the U.S. authorities were more keen to 
welcome uh, European migrants, of course, we know about the anti-immigrant uh, legislation of the 1920s, but compared to their counterparts in Pretoria, they were much more open uh, to migration. And then that leads us in the latter stages of the demise of apartheid to the figure of Leon Sullivan, a black cleric from Philadelphia, uh, who was a figure in the so-called civil rights movement in the United States of America, and then established the Sullivan Principles, which was designed in South Africa to help to elevate some Africans on the class ladder. Of course, he evaded the question of political power, uh, and certainly, like most in the United States, or many in the United States, he was anti-communist at a time when the major lifeline for the anti-apartheid forces was the, was the socialist camp, the Cuban forces who defeated the apartheid forces on the battlefield of Southern Africa, the Soviet Union, which then in turn bolstered uh, the Cubans. And so it's, it's quite striking that Reverend Sullivan, who was backed by the Fortune 500, uh, he was a board member of General Motors, for example, was trying to implement a program in South Africa that he thought had been implemented successfully here in North America. And he wasn't thought well of by the anti-apartheid movement here in the U.S. Oh, to put it mildly, even some liberals in the anti-apartheid movement in the United States of America looked askance at the so-called Sullivan principles and what uh, Reverend Leon Sullivan was trying to do. And of course, uh, I have quite a bit in this 900-page book uh, on the anti-apartheid movement, and particularly the rather uh, ominous role of Reverend Leon Sullivan himself. Well, going back to World War II, tell us about the OBB and its membership in South Africa. This was the some type of Nazi or far-right organization or party in South Africa, supporting of the Nazis. Well, they were basically the vanguard of racism. One way to look at them would be as the so-called Leninists of the Afrikaner elite or Leninists of the ruling elite, a, an elite that saw itself as being more foresighted in terms of implementing the basic predicates of what came to be apartheid arising in 1948. Uh, as noted, many of them were interned during World War II because of their uh, pro-Nazi and pro-Berlin uh, sympathies. Uh, there were paramilitary forces within the uh, this Afrikaner elite uh, that we're describing. And of course, uh, as a direct result of the so-called Anglo-Boer War, which we've made reference to more than once uh, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, they were fervently anti-London. And so what that meant was that after Germany was defeated, in World War II, 1945, and as the United States emerged as power number one, uh, many of this African elite attached themselves almost romantically uh, to Washington uh, because Washington was the ascending power. They thought Washington would protect Pretoria. Of course, they were violently anti-communist and hostile, to put it mildly, and understatedly, to Moscow and to the socialist camp in the Soviet Union. And so, therefore, when Washington began reluctantly moving away from Jim Crow, apartheid's close cousin, under international pressure and under domestic pressure, 
Uh, Pretoria and the Afrikaner elite reacted like a thwarted lover. Uh, they felt that they had been betrayed by Washington, which began to move away from Jim Crow and move away from state-sanctioned racism. And then in turn, under pressure from the black population that had been empowered as a direct result of this anti-Jim Crow movement, then Washington began to pressure Pretoria to make halting steps away from its own state-sanctioned racism, which led to numerous clashes between the two powers. And in fact, just as a footnote, I should mention that one of the architects of apartheid, uh, Verwut, uh, was assassinated in the early 1960s. He was a prime minister. And the South Africans, the African elite, suspected that Washington had a hand in his murder, and in fact, there might be something to this. And I just noted, noticed in terms of the South African elections that one of his direct descendants is now represented in the parliament in South Africa. And so I hope he takes up that cause and investigates uh, how this man, this former South African prime minister and architect of apartheid was killed. I'm kind of running out of time, so I just want to cover two things. First, if you want to say anything else about how the development of apartheid was fed by U.S. imperialism, but then began to clash with it. And then also find out from you, like what the epilogue is to this part of the narrative about South Africa. Well, certainly there was a clash, particularly when Ghana comes to independence in 1957, and there's a prospect of an independent Africa, certainly by 1960, 1963, 63 being the independence of Kenya. And Washington feared correctly that these independent African nations would not have any dealings with apartheid South Africa, in fact, would escalate support for the anti-apartheid struggle. And this would put Washington in a corner, given the fact that it was a prime supporter of apartheid South Africa. And this kind of pressure then leads to the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act, uh, which the anti-apartheid movement uh, takes credit for it, justifiably, which was passed over Ronald Reagan's veto. And even before many Western European nations, led by Social Democrats, had imposed sanctions, sanctions that had been imposed by Washington, uh, which is, in retrospect, a startling development and a testament to the organizing of anti-apartheid forces on these shores and the energy and activism of African governments, particularly the frontline states, uh, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, after it comes to independence in 1980. And there's a further point I'd like to make, which is that the African National Congress is unbanned and Nelson Mandela is freed in 1990, just a few weeks after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. The last apartheid leader, F.W. de Klerk, did not uh, set that up as a coincidence uh, he saw that with the collapse of the socialist camp, it would be very difficult for the ANC to push for redistribution of the wealth in a meaningful way when its prime supporter, the socialist camp led by the Soviet Union, was then in crisis. And this helps to shed light on why, despite advances by the ANC government since 1994, in terms of providing water and to a certain degree housing and to a certain degree education, uh, in some ways, many outsiders see this 25-year period as a kind of disappointment without taking into account 
the external situation. I mean, here you have China, for example, 1.3 billion people, which is now under pressure from U.S. imperialism. And it will be very interesting to see how China responds to this kind of pressure uh, from world imperialism. And you should compare that to South Africa with a population of 50 million, uh, for example, by way of comparison. And speaking of elections, you know that there were elections in South Africa just a few days ago. The ANC majority was reduced from about 62% to about 57%. But the vote for the neo-apartheid opposition, the so-called Democratic Alliance, was also reduced. The vote for the economic freedom fighters, uh, which styles itself as a kind of militant force that pushes heavily against white supremacy, pushes heavily for uh, taking back the land stolen uh, from its original inhabitants after the invasion by Europeans in 1652, uh, their numbers doubled, albeit uh, it only doubled from about maybe six seats in parliament to about 12, compared to the ANC having scores, hundreds of members of parliament. But still, uh, if I were part of that European minority and business sector in South Africa, I would look very closely at the electoral figures and might decide that the better part of wisdom would be to try to cut a deal before it's too late uh, with the ANC government. Well, we certainly will continue having more discussions about that as time goes on. And there are ongoing developments in South Africa. There are reports about the white farmers in South Africa bringing in Israeli mercenaries to train them, I guess, and if they have to take up arms or whatever, there is a, and as we've discussed many times on this show, I don't know if threats is the right word, but a lot of noise being made by elements of the Trump administration to support um, white uh, South African farmers if there is any attempt at land reform, which is what is really needed to give the majority of South Africans uh, the life that they need, that they fought for for so many decades. So, you know, that's something that will definitely... (laughs) that will go forward in conversation beyond our discussion about this uh, tremendous 900-page book. But I want to thank Professor Gerald Horn uh, for joining me for this uh, segment of the F Word on Fascism, our monthly discussion. And um, for his new book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you, and I'll see you on Sunday. That's right. I won't forget to mention that you will be here with us to celebrate our fifth anniversary for On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. And that's Sunday, May 19th at 5 p.m. at the Busboys Anacostia location, 2004 Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Southeast D.C. So, yes, I'll see you then. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to Professor Gerald Horn. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Twitter or Facebook under On the Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW on the ground. 
And better yet, please, you can support On the Ground by helping us celebrate our fifth anniversary this Sunday, May 19th, 5 p.m. at the new Busboys and Poets Anacostia with Professor Gerald Horn on hand signing books, Chantel James, DJ Floyd Wahid Aaron, Lydia Curtis, Michelle Roberts, and more information and tickets are at onthegroundshow.org, Facebook, and at Eventbrite. The music we played this hour included Badawe by Ile Aye and Free by Stevie Wonder. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>